0: There, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app and let's get growing. Podcasted in like oh, I see the I see the button now. Okay. Yeah. All right. So we're recording. So that's good. Mm-hmm. So um I am just so excited because like you're an actual listener who like wrote to me and and like wrote back and you listened to the August um Uh, like update and like sent me all sorts of cool suggestions and uh, to be honest I like we never really put a lot of them into practice because I was so busy working this summer and um, Mike was busy and just we didn't get a lot of gardening in so the apples kind of came out of it Mike uh, talked about um, or he like did this permaculture thing that he had seen that Kelly did where he took like newspaper and like got it all really wet and then he put like four to six inches of like organic compost on top of it and also Andrew Mefford talked about that but he saw the Kelly Ware video and that seemed to really help Mm -hmm. um and then uh I don't know but anyway before we start talking about things like that, I do always like to tell like anybody uh, who's like a guest that I get on the phone with that. It's super easy to edit. So like if you want to change an answer or think about something or let the dog out or get a cup of coffee or, you know, Mm -hmm. anything, don't hesitate to put me on hold. I'm not always as good about doing the editing as much as I try to, but um, you know, it just, it just depends. But, uh, it is super easy to edit. Like, and then uh, it—I don't know. Do you have any questions for me?
1: Um, when do you think you will release the um the uh, this recording? Oh yeah, that's always a good it's one. Awesome.
0: Well, all right. So today is my official first real Friday off since I started teaching this year. So my listeners probably—well, by the time this airs, they might know. Uh, I went, ended up going back to school August 26th. Like I barely was able to give two weeks notice to my job, and um. And so, but it, I'm working at a school that has a four-day school week. So I'm going to start having three-day weekends. We just have to go in one Friday a month for teachers. So like last week we had a Friday, the week before we had Friday because we had Monday off, whatever, however that worked uh, for Labor Day. And so I should be getting things back up, but I'm pretty sure you are episode 298. Mm-hmm. And I think I have 13 episodes in the bank. So if I put one out a week, that's still three months. Like we're looking at like Thanksgiving, Christmas time. Well, that's fine. if I just wanted to maybe update my somehow a get them, you know, get caught up. Yeah, it would be maybe Halloween.
1: Oh, that's plenty. I ahead of a head start. I, I, had, I had just was thinking about updating my website. Um, you know, in case people want to see more recent stuff.
0: <laughs> cool. And my sad case is, like, I couldn't afford to pay my website in August, and so they finally shut me down. we only get paid once a month, and so I finally got paid uh, on Friday. <laughs> so it's been kind of like, yeah, but it'll get back up. Every once in a while, I just can't afford it. It's like it costs me $77 a month to have my website, which I love my website, and there are no ads on it. And sometimes I'm, like, super, like, I think that's totally worth it. It cost me like 30 bucks for the website and then 40 bucks for the podcast, mm-hmm. like for them to host the upload, which I would have to pay anywhere. You have to, you know, if you have a podcast, yeah. you yeah. have to pay Lipson or, I mean, SoundCloud used to be free. I think, I don't even think they're free anymore. Pretty much you have to pay someone to up, to host your, to hold it up there, so to me, I feel like I'm getting a killer deal. Plus, I feel like my website looks super sharp. If I ever need problems, they just fix it for me. If I change my logo, I just like, here's my logo, and they put it there. Like, their customer service is awesome. It's a total deal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, so did you have any other questions for me, or should we just get into the questions? Um,
1: I don't think I have
0: any other questions for you now. Um- Awesome. Well, let's go. So here we go. Welcome to the Organic Gardener podcast today. So it is Friday, September 20th, 2019. I told my students yesterday that it was the last day of summer, but actually this year... The first day of fall is Monday, September 23rd. Um, But anyway, I have an amazing guest on the line. I'm super excited because he started out as a listener. And he listened to my August update and sent me all sorts of cool tips that I know you're going to love to hear. And not only does he garden, but he's a chef himself. So he's going to talk to us about cooking food. And uh, I'm not sure. I want to say he's a Canadian who's in Minneapolis but I don't really know so he'll tell us here today from Thrive Chef Works is Nick Schneider welcome to the show Nick
1: thanks Jackie I'm really I'm glad to be here and I I thank you for the invite and and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing my story um I'm not a Canadian by the way um I don't know not sure where you got that but I actually did go to culinary school in Canada in Vancouver um so perhaps uh Perhaps that's
0: oh, maybe that was it. I was reading on your website and maybe that's where I saw it. yeah, um, I'm
1: from Minnesota originally and grew up in the suburbs of Minneapolis and um, kind of a fairly typical um, you know upbringing in the in the suburbs and um I guess in in many ways my my career and as being a chef and and my extensive uh, hobby is being a gardener, you might say I've also done a lot of market gardening, but I think it's kind of a reaction a little bit to growing up in the 80s and 90s and in a time and place where food wasn't really, you know, it was an afterthought, it wasn't valued so much. And um it was the um uh, basically, it was kind of an era of processed foods and convenience foods and things. So I was in many ways rediscovering a connection with nature in both the kitchen and the garden. And um, so I, I got a degree in psychology, but then quickly realized that I kind of needed to, um, do something a little bit more inspiring. And I, um, lived in Europe for a semester when I was in college and, and traveled around Europe and I really saw food in a different light and experienced it quite differently than what I had. And, um, It's then that I decided to go to culinary school and I ended up in Vancouver, British Columbia, and um, just kind of fell in love with that region. I have some relatives out there as well. And so I I came back to the Twin Cities and started working in kitchens and um, uh, small kitchens, chef owned kitchens, Italian um, owners, and um, kind of um, moved around a little bit as chefs do, as is quite normal. And, um, I also started gardening at a fairly, at a fairly young age, my right out of college, my early twenties, I, um, I ended up, um, dating a woman from Ukraine and and she had a strong gardening interest. And that's, that's kind of one way it got started I'd always been interested in nature as a young kid. But it, you know, there was a little bit of gardening, um, with my parents, um, but it was just you know, very simple, just some chard and green beans and that kind of thing. So uh, I ended up working, started working at a uh, natural foods co-op right next to a really old and very involved um, and thriving community garden in St. Paul. And it's kind of there that I met some really, really great gardeners and people who I'd call mentors. And one pillar gardener there was a soil scientist at the University of Minnesota and and she um kind of in a way took me under her wing a little bit and I got to learn a lot of um really uh kind of incredible techniques that um I might not have otherwise have learned so early on um kind of the raised bed no-till gardening um cover crop systems um Diversified planes, that kind of thing, rotation, and one thing that you know really inspired me from a uh, young age um, uh, to kind of continue this and really uh, uh, do a lot more is is um just witnessing the difference, uh, witnessing the differences in her garden and other other community gardens, and she made community garden plot that was not tilled in the back row so to speak and the rest of the 90 plots were tilled once a year. Um, The the soil was still you know quite good but I have to say that she had the best looking vegetables and the earliest and the largest looking vegetables of any in that garden and it was it was no mystery that she was doing something different and right and it was from her that i about mycorrhizal fungi and the relationship of the microbes in the soil to the plant and how important that was and and then again using those techniques so i i was able to follow in her footsteps in a way um, after she had done work the, a nonprofit an urban agriculture nonprofit in st paul which is was was centered in gardens all over st paul um, working with children and new americans and to form a market garden, essentially, um, I uh, was able to take over that job when she was finished, and she was still working on her PhD at that point. And and so I got to do be market gardener for three years. Um, this is all all the while while I was cooking at night in in chef owned restaurants. So I couldn't do this uh, these days; that would be way too way too intense. But uh, when I was in my twenties, I had the energy for it. Hey,
0: so I just. Can I? Are you a rock star millennial? Or you? It sounds like you're um,
1: more. Generation. Not, not necessarily. I'm a. I'm 42, so I'm a. I'm an Xer, but I'm. I'm kind of on the cusp. I'd say.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh. Well, cool. Well, you've just like gone through like. So, I, you can tell you're a listener because you answered like a lot of the questions that I, um, normally ask, like about your first gardening experience and how you mm-hmm. learned how to garden, and so. Uh. Do you, do you yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt, so do you just want to keep going or you yeah. want to tell us about something that grew well this year? like well, I'm just like someone to your story i'll just go back to your story,
1: yeah, I guess um for me, I'll just say this for many years i I've been involved in the both um, the culinary world and the and the growing world um and I, I see that they're so intimately intertwined and um kind of dependent on each other and The communities overlap so much, and I found that really inspiring, um, um, such that I was able to go to the Moses Conference for many times when I was in my 20s, the Midwest Organic Conference for uh, farming, and meet a lot of really great farmers and market gardeners. And for many years in my 20s, I thought I would actually become a farmer um, or um, move to the country and start a kind of land-based business. Uh, alas, I stayed in the city and I'm still working as a chef, but the long and short of it is now after working at some great restaurants and natural food restaurants in Minneapolis and having worked for some some people who are like considered like, I guess, local um, uh, local superstars, you might say for natural foods. Um, the, you might say the local um, um, Alice Waters per se, um, uh, worked for this woman for seven years and 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 then um after that um ended i started my own business as a personal chef and i've been doing that for about eight years working in people's homes uh, uh cooking or monday through friday that kind of thing um for the everyday meals it's different from catering and it's not necessarily an event-based thing so being a personal chef has allowed me a lot more time Uh, on weekends and evenings and it's just I like the balance of that lifestyle a lot more for example um it's it's uh being a chef is is really awesome but the restaurant life is really it's really um can be really hard on you and um working 60 hours a week is like the bare minimum oftentimes it's more and the end game um for a lot of people is trying to own your own restaurant and that involves again working many many hours and lots of risk (laughs) um but um I'm very inspired by the people who do that successfully, so...
0: Well, it's yeah. so interesting because I worked in a restaurant all summer and like, I kept telling the owner, I'm like, it's amazing what you have done here because look at all the people you have employed and so many people start restaurants and fail. And yet you've been, cause they've been there since the seventies and just his sons are taking over, mm-hmm. but the mom and the dad are still there. It's very much a family restaurant, but still they have like 40 full-time employees, but like all the people that like, you know, bring the pickles and bring the bread, like the bakery next door supplies all the gluten-free bread. And the cinnamon raisin, like they make this incredible French toast out of like cinnamon raisin bread that's like this super thick, like bread from next door. Like they there's like all these like little and like the you know, just even the produce guy who comes to the guy who comes and delivers the eggs and just they go through so much food. And yeah, there's so much to running a restaurant and they uh and, and keep it going. And like, I'm so curious what it's like in the off seasons because they're still paying all these people. I'm like, I'm always like looking at the tickets and thinking $10, $10, $10. Like, how does this even add up to pay all of us? thinking about how many people are working there and just uh, it's so fascinating to hear your story. You've just lived this incredible life and just um, I think listeners are going to be really inspired. And I'm curious because I do have a lot of listeners like in California and Texas and New York, like about your business model because you definitely have like a green future grower business and like also like just coincidentally this week I've been listening to this organized 365 podcast that one of the teacher podcasts um mentioned Mm -hmm. because I've been like working on cleaning my classroom like this classroom I moved into is was so crowded when I first got in there like I've gotten rid of like four tables and like 25 boxes of books and supplies and just like it is like the dreamiest classroom in some ways because it has every minute you could ever need but in other ways it's just like overflowing like teacher manuals from like i don't know such outdated teacher manuals and things and um and just uh so i've been listening to this organized podcast and one of the things she talks about is getting help in your life either somebody to come help like clean your house or somebody to come cook your meals for you yeah. and like Everybody what i'm curious about is like food. do you grow the food that you're cooking in these people's houses like do you do any gardening there do you have like little herb beds in their gardens or like where do you get the food that you're cooking in these people's home
1: um that's a great question because i uh, i don't grow it but i do actually take a small portion sometimes from my own garden if, if i have abundance of something um i uh like or you know anything really it but if I particularly um am inspired to use some of my own stuff I and you know we all know how abundant gardens how abundant gardens are so I will take some of that stuff but um what um what I what is basic uh model is um I don't know if you know this but in the twin cities we have a really strong um co natural co-op um natural or grocery co-op um culture and, and just infrastructure cool. there's a ton of them there's a ton of them and they all um supply really great organic food and produce and um meats and that, that kind of thing and cheeses it's it's really um blossomed and proliferated in the last uh, 20 30 years um went through kind of like um i think um a hiatus in the 80s and part of the 90s and so I'm really lucky to be able to be members of a number of co-ops where I buy all that stuff. And, and one of the things is, I mean, when you're a personal chef and you're in those stores every day, you get to know the staff, you get to know the board members even, and you, and you can start to kind of um, have influence a little and really learn um, how your membership can be um, a a driver in terms of decision-making and helping them you know, get new products, find different ones or feedback, that kind of thing. And um, my particular passion and interest is kind of uh, finding finding great farmers, keeping great farmers, and just really redefining the relationship that the co-op has to um, the small local farms in the area. And, uh, and you know, really looking for the, the best nutrient-dense food that is available locally. And um, so that's that's where I get the produce. Um, I, I don't garden at their clients' homes, for example. Um, but uh, I just bring everything there.
0: And then, how, like, do you go to more than one house a day? Like, how does this work? I'm so fascinated.
1: Usually usually one a day, but sometimes two. And, uh, you know, two, to, two is about the limit. But, um, yeah, it can be a really long day otherwise. Um, so you know we're we're kind of spread out here it's you know in the midwest so some of these homes are across town and just the commute time really you know what I mean uh commute time can I don't need to probably explain that to folks who live in the west but um, it can add up so um I'm hoping to do some bike commuting next year actually um some of my clients are quite close so that's kind of nice Was there anything more? I just more got about this that, thing and...
0: that said you muted yourself or something. Wait, hold on. So did you not hear that question? Like I was like, like describe your day quest. Oh, like, I what's heard. the first thing you do? Like, do you go to the market oh. first or like plan a meal first? Like, and then do like do you do the cooking and the cleanup? Or like, how does all that work?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a single employee operation. Um and so except sometimes when I'm catering, you know, I'll hire on some help, but in a typical day, I'm I'm just going to the co-op, grabbing a few things that I need, and then heading off to the client's home. But the planning is usually, you know, following uh, an agreed-upon menu, that kind of thing. So, um, it 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 changes a little bit just because sometimes you know you go into the store and you don't know what's going to look fresh and available, and you don't know exactly what'll be what'll be out of stock, for example. So it can it can shift, and that's where you know the chef skills of thinking on the fly are. Pretty useful. and yeah, uh, I like to change menus seasonally and change uh, change the dishes. Yeah, I don't really need to food. say
0: anything because that's exactly what I was just gonna ask. Like since we talked about this will probably air sometime between October, like you know, end of Halloween and Thanksgiving and maybe going into the Christmas season. like where people are doing a lot of entertaining, like do you have some recipes and things you want to share with us or ideas or cooking tips?
1: Yeah, I guess one of the best cooking tips I could mention, and this is something I would just see like a lot of um, uh, you might say novice cooks make, is uh, crowding the pan. It's if you like if you want to saute something, but you put too many things in the pan, you're actually going to be you end up steaming them, you know, and that's a totally different process than sauteing. So, in general, one of the most common uh, things people do to Possibly um get get not as nice results as overcrowding the pan and that's like but it could be with vegetables or uh, proteins, for example, just just know that you know it's just a matter of physics, and the more things you put into a pan, it draws more heat away from you know it's just the heat is just more distributed so you don't you don't get the browning for example that you might want or um, you're steaming something, so you might as well get the steamer out and put it in the steamer. <laughs> that's one tip if you hit um,
0: my number right on the nail like i always i'm like i'll take like a cast iron pan and like fill it up so it's like overflowing and then try to squish a lid on it just to like get as much as i can cook in one cooking experience because like i tell my mom all the time i'm like mom it's not that people don't want to learn how to cook it's we don't want to clean up
1: <laughs> right i mean one one pan is easier to clean up than three or four yeah. and sometimes you just don't have the time necessarily and I, we have a one-year-old now and I certainly know what that's like not having the time. So, um, a couple other tips would be like, I really like to use a lot of herbs in my cooking. I think fresh herbs are, are really important in terms of health and flavor. I'm, i like kind of big, bold flavors. I totally and,
0: agree there too.
1: So I, I think a dish usually should have like one or two herbs if, if you can, you know, it's rare that I cook without an herb. And, um, one thing I also have heard, um, um said recently uh about i think um samit nusra i think is her name i i hope i'm not mispronouncing it but she talks about how important acid is in food um and i couldn't agree more just like having a little bit of an acidic component and you can find that in so many different cultural cuisines around the world whether it's like lime or lemon or vinegar or balsamic you know uh tamarind from you know india just the sour um quality to lift lift the flavors it kind of acts a little bit like salt in lifting flavors and balancing out the, the fattiness that you might have in a dish from whatever fats you're using for example um so
0: what about wine for all of us italians out there oh does yeah cuz my yeah, mom's a big the wine but of course my mom's like secret sauce is Lemon and wine.
1: <laughs> here's a here's a tip about wine cooking with wine, and and this is this comes from Julia Child, um, and my dad used to do this, and I just grew up with this memory of this slowly simmering tomato sauces. That if you reduce wine very very slowly versus very rapidly, you'll get you'll get more out of that wine, and you'll get more flavor, you'll get more um, kind of umami out of that if it's it's just bubbling real slowly throughout the day. And um, just different kinds of chemical reactions happening, um, and i I couldn't attest more. I mean, the taste of my dad's my memory of that taste was really quite um, great. um when I make wines in a professional kitchen, or not wines per se, but um, a sauce, we sometimes don't have the time to rapidly reduce or, or slowly reduce, so we'll end up having to reduce more rapidly, where well, you can't extract you know you're not getting that that long slow cooking and the improved flavor you might say
0: hmm that's interesting is so uh is that like mostly for sauces or like even or is that like yeah. does it matter what wine like i'm thinking in tomato sauce i'm more likely to put red wine yeah. and in,
1: yep. when that's my exactly mom's right. cooking fish cool.
0: she's gonna make that wine sauce with like white wine that she kind of wants to like put in the hot pan and then like kind of evaporate off sort of like, yeah.
1: yeah, yeah I mean that's a little bit different I guess the, the French of in like a la minute sauces and yeah you um, you're dealing with such a small quantity of wine there that maybe it's not maybe it's not as pertinent to um, a bigger pot of something that you're reducing um, like to, a tomato sauce would be the bolognese sauce would be a good example um, marinara's um as well so yeah those are some tips that i can think of for cooking and um one recipe that i love as well I'll share with you that um it's very simple and i tend to cook very simple because again time <laughs> um at home anyway because a lot of times i i'd love to be in the garden you know and i like to divide my time between the kitchen and the garden and, you know with limited daylight hours you you need to get out there so um um, is this Tuscan kale and it's, it's a Tuscan brown butter kale. And then you use it, you, you make it with the, the lacinato or dinosaur kale. It comes from Tuscany and, um, I just, um, strip it from the strip off the stem. Um, but you don't always have to do that. Um, but, I, um, and you basically get some brown butter and a little bit of cooking oil in a pan and you let that in a heavy pan. And you let that butter start to brown a little. And then you basically stir fry the kale in that, and you'll hear a pop, a lot of popping and sizzling. And what you're going for is a, just a little bit of blackening of the kale. And um, you can add a few drops of water if you like, and then put the lid on and then let it steam as well. But you don't necessarily have to do that if you wanted a little bit, just a little bit of crisp in there. But it's that, that lightly blackened. Um, Kale uh, flavor, that's really delicious. Some um, grilled, you know, grilled brassicas, for example, uh, are quite good as too. You know, you can blanch things like bok choy and broccoli, or you know, broccolini, and then put them on the grill briefly. That's really nice.
0: Hmm, I. I cook so much. This summer, we didn't really get a lot of kale. But last summer, I cooked a ton of that dinosaur dough kale. Ever since I discovered that stuff, that that is my favorite kale. And I wonder if that's because um, I'm an Italian. And uh, mm-hmm. so, uh, well, I'm kind of curious about like, so you do you live in the city like tell us about your garden like i'm trying to picture it is it like do you have a yeah yeah in i'm in minneapolis Some like, where are you at yeah i'm in minneapolis fairly
1: urban i have we have a, an eighth acre so um before buying our house five years ago i was in a lot of community gardens and incidentally i just spent like uh to mention that i spent five uh five years in a in a intentional community with with a community garden attached to it that also had like lots of land in rural Wisconsin and up there um, I kind of revitalized and expanded greatly um, an orchard. So uh, orcharding is kind of another big passion of mine growing fruit trees. So in our, in our, on our property, it's, you know, it's an eighth acre, so it's fairly tight, but we, we have full sun. You kind of need to have that and um, um, raised it's, you know, it's, it's raised bed and no till method and, um, and when we set up this garden, one thing that I did was kind of curious to do is try and experiment, and I did four beds with four different methods. Uh, one was a double dug, John jebbin style. One was um, lasagna gardening, uh, two years of lasagna gardening that's layered, layered brown and green. And one was um, uh, about three years of cover crop, um, just not, nothing but cover crops on it, and then um, the final one was just um, basically like sheet mulched cardboard and compost, and let's get growing something now because you know we wanted to grow something. And to watch those different, um, different, um I guess, examples of things growing was really impressive to me. And I found that the one that I used the cover crop on, um, it, over the long run, over the following three or so years, um, really did well, like really uh, produced. Um, I guess a little bit bigger and more robust vegetables. So that was, that was a fun little experiment to do. And, um, also the, the double dog one, we, we, we grew sunflowers for our wedding. in that one, once we first started growing it, growing in that bed, and the sunflowers were like, like 15 feet tall. They were just super happy. Uh, and from everything I've heard of that method, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's important I guess <laughs> produces a lot of uh creativity so
0: well, how does so how does the double dug method fit into the no tilt thing because you're just digging yeah well it with like a big fat yeah. shovel and it's not really disturbing the soil web yeah. or
1: it's a, one, it's a one and done kind of um well the idea is like it's a one and done you know process where you're digging in deep um the first time and then you're you're not touching it, you know. Um uh I guess um my reaction to that now is like I don't think it's as, as necessary or as pertinent to growing in the upper Midwest where we're we have a abundant water, you know, and our soils are fairly decent. It's a, it's a sandy loam soil here, um clay loam in other parts of the state and it's fairly decent growing soil. And from from what I've seen of the Jevons method, it's, you know, it's done in the semi-arid um, hillsides of California where water is not, not that abundant. And, um, and, and so I don't necessarily think it would be that, that important of a style to do where I am again, you know, I wouldn't do that again. In fact, my own thoughts now are um, at least growing for where I am is that, you don't need much of a raised bed because we have great drainage. Um, uh, And the you know, in Georgia, for example, where you have like the old clay soils, you might go up a little higher because you need the drainage, you know, in the Southwest, you might go lower. You might have a sunken bed because you don't have the water. So there's all these different, you know, geographic influences. And, you know, it's always important to take into account. So um, the thing that I was going to mention there is I really think that parent soil is really important. Um And working with that because it's it's versus um I've had real mixed results too in some gardens bringing in a lot of compost um or quote unquote topsoil you just they're not all created equal, and you don't necessarily know how it was made and I feel like working with cover crops and small amounts of high quality compost um in your parent soil is a really good method or really good approach
0: uh you know cool this is like you are so informative i love to hear like i'm sure listeners are like oh i didn't know that and i didn't know that and isn't that interesting and that's where i live and oh uh i'm curious like what cover crops did you plant in the cover crop bed
1: um i started out um doing a lot of um rye and um vetch and those are the first couple that i learned of course and oats and peas those four mainly and um over uh over the years I've started doing more and more recently, I have been into what farmer Gabe Brown has been doing and really excited about trying um, real diverse mixes of cover crops, like, you know, seven mixes, you know, all kinds of things and um, it would be like buckwheat and safflower, um, some of the summer grasses, like um, sorghum and um, millet, for example and um i really love um the the big uh brassica root What's it Um, forage radish i love that that one and so what i've been doing uh, recently is that i've been doing that on uh, sections of beds um, where i basically leave them i leave them in cover crop for about half season or um even a full season if I'm trying to like kind of really improve the soil or repair it in some way. Um, And one of the things that I observed um, when I was, uh, when I was cooking and market gardening, I would visit some of the organic farms and one farm in particular, the um, gardens of Egan or um, the, the Diffleys farm in Minnesota, they were the first organic farmers in the state to be certified and absolute Master farmers and their produce was just like top of the market, you know, in the Twin Cities. And we would buy that. And they were also partnering with the restaurants I worked in. And and I've been to that farm many times. And I would just see what they do. And what's what impressed me is that they would put in, they'd put half of the farm in cover crops each year, and then the other half would be their their assorted vegetables. And and I think that's one of the reasons why they had such a um, bountiful um, harvest. And their stuff looked so good, you know is because they were really resting the soil really is it was was regenerative agriculture in a sense before we were even using that term you know Um, and and so those are some of the things i'm working on but one of the challenges with using these diverse cover crops i have found um, if you're not like you know if you're not putting in if it's not a pasture if you don't have animals eating it like i don't is that they're all going to seed at different rates and different times and you really, you really don't want, you know, buckwheat going to seed in your garden. Um, I don't know, it depends on your style of gardening necessarily, but, you know, if they're all going to seed at different times and you, you don't manage them well, or you can't catch them in time in terms of like, you know, knocking it down or killing it in some way, you can, you can end up just having a lot, a lot of that in your bed when you're trying to seed lettuces or something you know it's it's it can create a bit of a challenge so there's um there's that to think about uh, um I don't know if I mentioned this to you earlier Jackie but I used I uh, have been teaching cover crop classes for a few years now um in various through various venues in town and I really enjoy teaching the, those skills to gardeners
0: and um no you uh, should do an online webinar because you have so much experience mixed together with, like, your cooking and just uh, – I, I would like to see some of what you're doing because I did the buckwheat experiment. And, like, the one thing I guess we have is just, like, it's just so dry here that the buckwheat does not – it doesn't seem to be taking off. Like, I put it in these two beds. And it was funny because the one bed that I thought it was going to come back in, it didn't really come back in as much. And the other bed that I thought that I had gotten the seed out of there is full of it. (laughs) But um, the other thing I wanted to say, like, one of the advice you gave me was to plant comfrey. And, like, that's where, like, Patty Armister's always telling me, you put comfrey in the garden. And we just, like, I bought the comfrey seeds. And that is, again, like, one of the things that we didn't get in the ground this year So do you want to talk a little bit about like why people would use comfrey and then maybe we'll get to like the getting to the root of things because um, we're getting like, I I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know you're super busy and it's been a while. So,
1: Oh, cool. I I have time today if you, uh, over things. Just keep talking. um, You're full of gold. Yeah. Comfrey. uh, Comfrey is, um, uh, used a lot in the permaculture um, and biodynamic scenes. And um, one thing that I'll mention about it is it, it, it's you put it in somewhere, in case you didn't know, it's it's going to be there for a long time unless you really work hard to try to get rid of it because it's got such a deep tap root. It's, it's kind of in, in to stay and uh, if you were ever to till it, uh, um, you just create a, a lot more comfrey plants, whether you want to or not. So each little piece of root you cut will start a new plant, and um, in that regards, it's easy to propagate because you just split it. But the big reason I think people use comfrey is to—it's like a mulch maker. Um, so you can, mul- you know, you can you can make mulch under under some fruit trees or um, you know you know perennial planting if you like. Um, you can also cut that and cut those the greening off of it in june throughout the season really and then use that as a mulch and you'll be surprised to see how um quickly the leaves kind of darken and blacken and it just it it sort of tells you that it's um there's a lot of good microbial things happening to that um to that leaf and and it's a good sign you know that it's reacting so well with the, the soil and so um one thing i'll mention about comfrey is you can you can get the common kind that will recede itself you know it's, everything's different everywhere but where i am in minnesota it doesn't recede itself very aggressively in fact it's, it's extremely rare that i would see a small plant growing and i would take take it out if i didn't want it there but there's a, a cultivar called Bocking 14 and it's it's um it's a sterile cultivar so its seeds aren't um, going to be spreading. You know, if you were, if, you know, I'm not sure if further south. In the in the south, maybe it will actually have time to reseed itself and become a more of a problem. That's where, you know, gardening in your area, you you have to apply all the the local, the local factors. A lot of times, people will put compost underneath fruit trees, um, not too close to the trunk, but Maybe like five, six feet away or you know under the drip line even, and they'll they'll use it to um, create mulch for that tree. And um, it pairs fairly well with um, with fruit trees in that it's it roots um, are you know go deep and down quickly versus the fruit tree roots are, tend to be a bit more horizontal and closer to the surface. So you're kind of accessing different root zones so it's kind of efficient use the rhizosphere. Oh. Yeah, so that's, that's that's what I'd say about comfrey Um use it cautiously, I guess. Um there's a whole there's a whole thing about um um it's called bone heal and uh bone well or bone heal as well as an older name so it can heal heal things sometimes too rapidly. I, you'll hear herbalists talk about that but um, <laughs> cool
0: well uh well, do you want to tell us about do you want to tell us about something that grew well this year in your garden?
1: Uh sure. Um for me, one of the biggest uh, differences I saw was um uh, cucumbers and apples. And know that's kind of a weird thing to say because they're they're very different crops, but I say that because I was doing a lot of um applications of foliar feeding this year, particularly <laughs> using um the advancing ecological agriculture products that John Kemp talks about and um um accelerate um which is one involves calcium and a lot of seaweed and and you you can find these things in different different suppliers i imagine but I'm not you know necessarily to be a spokesperson for that company even though i do i do like what they do quite a bit and i'll I'll say that they um uh, I saw really impressive results with um more cucumbers um that just kept producing on and on and on um so what that does is um is increases um the number of uh number of flowers for example and um and size too it can increase size um i my apples did extremely well um with um applications of uh calcium and seaweed real critical points of influence in you know right after uh, right after bloom so i've learned an absolute ton about um plants and prop you know basically um how to increase the yield and maximize the the size too with um with uh various foliar feeding um, uh, regimens um from that i've learned from um advancing ecological agriculture and john kemp's webinars it, it's it's pretty impressive that all of that stuff is on the web um at no cost i <laughs> have to say they're doing they're doing some a great service in a way yeah um,
0: he was a guest on my so, show he was awesome the, i'm so glad to hear um I, that you were yeah, putting yeah. that stuff into practice in your garden and about your results so i'll maybe put a yeah. link to that in the show notes yeah, so if i, I missed that interview they can hear that interview too Oh my goodness.
1: I I came to uh, John Kemp's work via uh, Steve Solomon who um uh, who um book I read The Intelligent Gardener and then Steve was a guest on the Room in It podcast and mentioned to John Kemp and then I and
0: yeah, I Yeah, I feel like he's um, like the buzzword like that people way. like I I hear people talk about eco agriculture a lot. And then the other thing is like in um Andrew Mefford's book and Jesse Frost talk about it a lot. Um, in the no-till movement is time, which you mentioned, like there's that, that in essential time that you put that in. So, um, just like I said, you're dropping tons of golden yeah. seeds. So keep going.
1: Yeah. So cucumbers did well. Apples did well. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, uh, we have a lot of like the cities are like petri dishes in a way. We've got a lot of pests and things like, you know, it's, it's, we're trying to, um, deal with um, things like apple maggot fly and um, some codling moth this year, which is the first thing. But, you know, we got a fairly decent harvest. We had a little bit of problems, but callowin clay is also an essential there in some of the fruit we grow here in the city. Um, callowin clay, or otherwise called surround, is really important for keeping certain pests off of fruit. Um, you know, um, uh, and one thing that I observed, which re- really interested me, and I've learned this through some webinars, that the cucumbers, they basically stopped producing for about two weeks, maybe you know, two weeks in July, where it got so hot, and it got so hot that um, the plants basically like shut down. Their, the, the flowers can't produce a fruit. They don't pollinate. And um, there's nothing to do with the insects, I don't think, but essentially it's the, it's the temperature. And um, and so basically, there was just like this lull of cucumbers, and then after the weather broke, they continued to produce um, prolifically up until now. Even so, we're getting weird, really weird weather. It's like basically, it's basically should be beginning of fall, but it's it's the middle of summer. It's climate weirding is happening. Um, I don't need to tell anybody that, but it's it kind of messes with your schedule of things too you know when you should be planting um for fall crops it's interesting that we're (laughs) talking
0: today of the um big climate strike like democracy now had Greta Thunberg on this morning and even on NBC News I saw and in Spokane they kept announcing you know be wherever at our I was I don't think it was Depot Park but like Spokane talking about where are all the climate activists meeting there and like the um big Go, their governor was coming, Jay Inslee, who was running for president on the climate change platform, who he just, like, now he's back to just running for governor. But um, it's good to hear climate change, like, on the actual mainstream media news today.
1: Well, one nice bit of advice I heard from some uh, permaculture folks about planting and just preparing for climate change is, is that you should just... Um, Plant stuff that is, um, you know, a zone below and a zone above and just plant for possibilities of um, extreme hot, extreme cold, you know, the different, the variability in weather that you might be getting where you are because um, um, things, you know, things, it's kind of wobbly, so to speak, you know, yeah. we, you? Uh, yeah, usually you don't get, um, well, like right now it's September in Minnesota and we've got like, a, you know, a week and a half of like 80, high 80s and, you know, low 90s, which is really, really strange,
0: you know. Yeah, they said that our weather is going to be really we've warm got- next week, like first week of fall and here comes summer. So yeah, I can totally relate. Uh, so what about, is there something different you're excited to try next year? Something.
1: Yeah, let's see. Um. Hmm. I am, I guess one thing that I'm building as I'm excited to try here is I'm doing a, a cold frame, um, like a, you know, four foot by 10 foot cold frame. It's, um, kind of in the shape of a, a deep winter greenhouse a little bit. Um, it's going to be cedar and uh, polycarbonate, but, uh, I'm building it just at the sort of drip line of a big maple tree. So I can kind of catch that sun at the beginning and end of the season where it's going to be more or less shaded in the summer and i'm excited to see how that works and um right now i've got those you know carrots and kale and uh, lettuces kind of coming up and i'm about to put the cold frame into place and um see how far i can take these um these plants into into uh november and december without (laughs) having them freeze and i've got this uh these big jugs, uh, five-gallon jugs that I'm going to put in there that um, you get from the Greek grocery store that olives come imported in. So I'll fill them up with water, and we'll see if we can get some thermal gain going and and um, extend the season a little. Because, you know, when winter comes, I just get really bummed that there's no fresh produce. You know, there's no fresh, fresh, um, fresh greens and that and kind of thing. You are around. speaking
0: my language. Last year, I was, like, so... Um, Pampered like Mike grew me so much. I didn't have to buy any kind of like produce till almost February. Like, I had just tons of kale and Swiss chard and just so many good greens out of our garden. This year, we just Mike just had too much stuff Mm -hmm. going on with our house that he didn't really get to do as much. And I was like, last February, I was just going crazy with like no greens. And again, this year, I'm still kind of like in that boat. I'm curious, like, you haven't mentioned arugula as a chef. Like, do you ever? Arugula, because that's like one uh-huh. I managed to like be picking for like Thanksgiving in the first week of Christmas just out of the snow. Like it's a really good, cool season.:
1: uh, Yeah, I love arugula. Um, I tend to do, have it do better in my garden in the fall than in the spring. Um, I'm still kind of working through some um, a problem that I've trying to trying to ascertain the issue. It's basically like in spring um something goes after little tiny brassica sprouts aggressively and i'm not sure exactly what it is i don't think it's slugs but whenever i put transplant brassicas in they do great but you know, i've grown tons of arugula over my life um you know in various gardens and there's just there's a little bit of a a crush in my garden now that i'm trying to figure out about growing arugula and um so i miss it um in the spring for sure and I've got some sprouting now. Um arugula is um yeah super cold tolerant and um some other greens that I'm um you may not have heard of that I'm I'm growing in the in the fall are Herbastella. It's an Italian herb. Um it's kind of like a um a thin, a flat, tall um green and it's it's a little bit mild. I, I don't think it's spicy really like arugula. But I've grown that a few times, and I'm continuing to grow that. And it's it's a little bit challenging to grow in Minnesota where our season is so short in the fall before it gets too cold.
0: Yeah, we kind of have so that it's, too. It's and my problem adapt- I have with the arugula in the spring is that it just tends to kind of bolt, like the spinach. It's definitely a fall crop here yeah. too. So yeah. how about, want to tell us about, well, sure. that's kind of like telling us about something that didn't work so well. Or is there something else you mentioned?
1: Yeah, some other example that I could share with you is I grew like um uh, like a what I'd call polyculture this year of tomatoes and cucumbers and pole beans, uh, like a broad bean. Um, And I just basically um, grew everything a little bit too close, and uh, the cucumbers kind of took over the tomatoes and shaded things a little bit too much, and I think it delayed the the ripening of the tomatoes, and I just have realized that you know keep the tolerances is, you know less. You know, my my one of my problems in gardening in urban areas is like I want to do too much, but um, if I can keep the spacing a little bit better, I think I'll do better. You know, spreading things out a little bit more. And polycultures are quite good, but um, you know, I think it's just a matter of getting the spacing a little bit better. Oh, well,
0: I never have that problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, i'm totally joking mike was just telling yeah. me the other day he's like i need that room these plants are gonna grow you cannot put i wanted to put something somewhere anyway yeah. so nick if we're getting yeah. to the root of things like what's your least favorite activity to do in the garden like is there something you have to force yourself to get out there and do what's your yeah choice?
1: um i like to do most things but one of the things that kind of um on me is um bringing in wood chips for paths and um also mulching under fruit trees uh i try to bring in wood chips for uh you know just keeping weeds off the path not keeping the paths from being too muddy or anything you know but um i have to you know used to be able to get wood chips delivered but now tree services aren't doing that here they drop them in a central location and you gotta go schlep them yourself which gets it's, uh, I don't know, it's to find the time to do that. And it's also filling up the back of a, a sedan, which is uh, tends to make a little bit of a mess, but you know, um, uh, that's probably my least favorite job. Um, and it's, it's interesting you mention it cause, um, it basically gets at the question of like, are any of our farms or gardens like, you know, uh, carbon negative, or do we always have to bring in more carbon, you know? And, um, I've, I've found it challenging to, uh, not bring in carbon like straw or leaves from neighbors or wood chips from wherever, you know, you know, so I guess growing cover crops is a good example of trying to be as um, carbon, you know, a little bit more carbon neutral and I mean, not importing something from off. Cool. I'm glad
0: you explained that. Cause at first I was like, what do you mean by carbon negative? But I get what you're saying. Like where you don't have to bring something and like transport and use gas to Yeah, Mike and I were just having it a beat because he wanted to get um, some more dirt before. So we had it for next spring ready and for some things that he wanted to put in some pots and again, it was like, well, do we drive all the way down to Big Arm, which is probably 150 miles from here in his pickup to get this giant load of organic dirt, which is like $175. I think if we bought it, it'd be like almost $200 if we bought it up here, but should we drive down there where it's going to be like $149? And he ended up buying one local um, that he got up here. It wasn't organic per se, but we're feeling pretty good about what's in it. So yeah, totally you we're constantly mm-hmm. like looking like the people at the school I'm at now, she's like, I saw so I was like, I'll take any compost. You know, if you don't mind saving compost, and like I want to get in there with my bucket and start saving what the kids are throwing off the trees. Um And I'm just glad I think I'm finally at a school where they're going to let me do that. It's kind of fun. It's a school. There's only like 80 students where like I've gone from like where I was teaching in a school where there were like 150 just kindergartners. (laughs) And now I'm at a school where there's 80 students, K through eight. So a little bit different. And the the school, like they're big on recycling. And like at our first staff meeting, they were like, will anybody volunteer to have a worm bin? And so I was like, I'm on that. And um, to try to eat up the cardboard because recycling in the community, there was a big problem of like where to take the paper now and the cardboard. And they were looking for a way for somebody to take the cardboard. Anyway, uh, I don't have my worm bin going yet. And I'm not sure that a worm bin is actually going to take up all the cardboard that they have at this school. But off topic. so, So on the flip side, what is your favorite activity to do in the garden? I have an idea, I think,
1: but uh, uh, harvesting is probably my favorite. There's, there's, I, I like a lot of things, but harvesting um, is quite fun because uh, it usually means I'm close to cooking too. You know, if you, um, it's just being um, kind of around all that abundance. You know, I think picking apples is one of my favorite favorite pastimes
0: too Oh, i'm so glad you said that because i was gonna say we ended up actually getting a lot of apples this year and it's been great because i've been taking like apples to school and like some of my kids are even like can i take some home in my backpack and i'm like sure (laughs) and then uh i've been bringing carrots to school and the purple Dragon tongue beans again, and so um, it's always fun that way, so yeah, harvesting I thought you were going to say harvesting the herbs because that is definitely one of my favorite things to harvest, like mm-hmm. I just love having fresh herbs in my food. I totally agree with you there
1: you were asking about recipes earlier and things that um, uh, I might enjoy or uh, for example, and one one of the things that I love is um June usually um. Is um, the Vietnamese soup called pho? It's a it's a soup that you use a lot of herbs in, too, particularly Thai basil and cilantro, and you can use mint in it too. And uh, it's one of my favorite um, meals in around June when all of those herbs start to uh, um, come into uh, readiness here.
0: Mm, that sounds delicious. Uh so Nick, what's the best gardening advice you have ever received? Curious to see if it's something you've already said or something you're going to share. Um, yeah,
1: yeah. It's um. I I'd say some of the strongest advice is probably um no till, raised bed, no till. You know, um, when it, that I learned from the soil scientist all those years ago. Um. An auxiliary to that, I think, was um. Um something i learned from i think steve solomon more is just about um working with parent soil and, and using compost really high quality compost like in smaller quantities you know um for example and not to necessarily um look at all compost as the same or or equal <laughs> um, a quick caveat to that is just that or explanation is just that i think that sometimes in urban settings you get city compost or municipal compost that a can have some garbage in it and b it's just not made in the same aerobic way that good compost should be made in and it can also be really um really heavy with um potassium which kind of can throw things a little bit um in your garden and um that's like a whole other discussion but um potassium is needed but it's it's kind of a it can kind of um, displace calcium, which is a more important um, element. So that's that's uh, this is some good advice that I've received. Well,
0: I think that advice um, is perfect. I mean. I get emails and listeners ask me and we even get phone calls um, with people asking about where are places to get good dirt and high quality dirt. And like, it's funny because like one of the places that I know of is actually on Long Island near my mom. There's like this little botanical garden on Long Island called Clark's Botanical Garden. They definitely on Saturdays sell um, the stuff they call their black gold. And I know that's a quality because so many of like mm-hmm. one of my very first guests, Piggy Jane Owsley talked about, she worked at a nursery for years. And one of the struggles she saw a lot of people in our local area get was, um, dirt or like when they were using hay or straw for mulch, they would get it from cows that were being fed chemical free hay, mm. which means that yeah. it was actually yeah. hay that was, um, or, or they were getting manure from cows that were fed chemical-free hay, which meant that the hay had actually been sprayed with like some kind of chemical that, mm-hmm. um, or weed-free hay, weed-free hay that was sprayed with a chemical and then they would get yeah. cow manure and it yeah. would just ruin their gardens. And Jekyll and Friedman talked about that out in Washington and just, you know, that's a huge thing. So um, I'm glad you talked about that, that even yeah. compost, um, especially if you get one from your local community, and probably because they're probably throwing grass clippings in there that are coming from gardens that, like, coming from yards that have those stupid little yellow flags that say don't walk here for 24 hours that i'm just like seriously what do you think happens that chemical I think it just evaporates and we don't like like mike's always telling me because now i have like a 45 minute drive every day and i've been doing it all summer like part of the reason i always have to wash my windshield even if it hasn't like it's just because there's like all these particles in the air that just get stuck on there like we really need to think about what we're spraying and putting places anyway uh off my soapbox nick do you mm-hmm. have a favorite tool you like to use in the garden like do you have a special pair of clippers that you use for cutting herbs or like harvesting apples or like what's your favorite tool you could put out
1: i usually just paint herbs with my fingers um but what um what i like is um There's a a hoe that I have that I um, have from my um, parents that I inherited that is um, really, I just, it's a very simple tool, but I love it. It's just a simple triangular shaped hoe. And I use it for creating a furrow, a seed furrow, or if I'm doing a little bit of weeding. And, um, you know, I use that, you know, I don't, fortunately, I don't have a lot of weeding. That's one of the advantages to uh, no-till gardening and raised raised bed no-till gardening is I hardly have to weed just a little bit in June and it's kind of nice
0: i'm sure my listeners are loving to hear that part so usually this is where i asked you have a favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden but did you want to use that faux soup one or did you have another one in mind or you talked about some at the beginning
1: a couple of those things i mentioned earlier i think would probably go back to the dinosaur kale and the um um, the pho. You know, I, one thing that I love to do with um, tomatoes, fresh tomatoes, is is pasta. I, I got my career started with a lot of Italian food and I spent a summer working on Italian farms. And so I got to uh, see some of this uh, firsthand. But it's just cooking a, a simple pasta with um, garlic and olive oil and throwing in fresh tomatoes and just Kind of letting them melt a little bit, not really cooking them down, but just letting them melt for a brief moment or two in hot oil and tossing that with the pasta. That's really nice. A really nice way to have. Um, so I have two, two things
0: to say about that. One, my mom was the master of that, and I can just taste that. Like I totally agree. That's one of my all-time favorite meals. And then also, listeners, if you want to hear really good, um, if you ever have a problem falling asleep, there's this lady that has this podcast called um, Nothing much ado about nothing or something and um like one of the very first episodes Mm -hmm. she talks she describes like she also went to italy in college i think and she describes cooking this like italian meal but just very simple just like you're talking about on like a rainy hot summer afternoon one day that's just it'll put you to sleep and just it's a great story the way she tells it Anyway, a little off topic there, but you know, podcasters—we all love other podcasts. So I, you know, there's a good one. I always like to mention it. Oh, but speaking of like things like that, do you have a favorite (laughs) internet resource? Like, where do you find yourself surfing on the web?
1: Um, well, um, I have a lot of time when I'm when I'm cooking, for example. As a personal chef, I'm very often working in people's homes um, alone, and so I have like. I'm busy with my hands, but I'm not busy with, uh, you know, my e- my ears. So I'm instead of listening to, you know, public radio, which I've done so for so many years. About two years ago, I started down this like path of just devouring podcasts. And yours was the first one I downloaded, actually, and, and have listened to a lot more too. So, um, so you can learn quite a lot without having to watch the screen necessarily. You know, for like a YouTube video for example um but some of the people that I might say um you can find um on various you know sites uh I follow the Dan Kittridge um the Bionutrient Food Association a lot he's got some great information you can find his stuff um um on the bionutrient.org um he's also all that's on YouTube I follow um, all of John Kemp's webinars um really informative um He's such an excellent communicator. Um, Pat Battle from, I think he's from North Carolina. Um, um, Living Web Farms, I believe is his uh, his farm. It's a, it's a teaching farm and and he's got great information. So those are three that I really love. Um, anything from Elaine Ingham too is, is good.
0: Nick, you're going to end up with your own fan um, club on this show, just like Patty Armister. She's probably listening and getting jealous. Uh how about a favorite reading material or a book or a magazine that you can recommend?
1: Yeah, um I think one one of the most um recent books that I read that I really enjoyed was um um Fred Provenza and he's been interviewed on a bunch of the podcasts that I was listening to. Um Scott Mann interviewed him for one, but he Fred Provenza is um He's retired now, but he's a he was a animal behaviorist for many years, and his book is called um, Nourishment. And um, I picked it up and started reading it, and it's a really beautiful uh, kind of uh, weaving of all in a lot of different uh, disciplines um, in in the uh, life sciences, for example, and brings a lot of uh, human health studies into it. It's 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 not just a book about um, what herds animal herds um, will eat. And for example, and there's it gets into the nitty gritty and a little bit of the the details of that and sort of a micro view, but he's very good at um, providing a macro view as well and showing how that relates to human health and uh, the interconnectedness of uh, a lot of things. It's just a wonderful read. And I, I recommend it highly. Fred Provenza's nourishment. That's, that's been an inspiring book. I, I quickly gave that away to someone else who was a dietitian, a young dietitian. Cool. I'll have you. to check
0: that out. I have like a whole pile of gardening books I ordered from the library that I've got to read. Um, maybe this weekend on my first three-day weekend, but I don't know. My list of to-dos is pretty long. Um, so Nick, usually this is what I ask about business advice for listeners. But like one of the questions I get a lot is for like people who want to sell to chefs and kind of like, do you have anything to speak Mm -hmm. to to that aspect as a chef?
1: Sure. Um much in the same way that like like next year's, I mean this September here, um now, for example, like this the growing season really begins six months ahead of time or begins a season ahead of time in in the way you think about the soil and what you do to it and and conditioning it in a way. And I think similar thoughts apply towards um, preparing for business or kind of setting up your client base or working with um, potential client bases, um, you know, visiting them in, in the winter or the season before to talk about what they want or what they're interested in um it's really important so that you can kind of plan accordingly um you know um it's what's interesting to me is it's, it's a whole other side topic so i can't really divulge you know go into it too much but um how farmers are going to be able to maybe demonstrate quality um differences in quality that they might have um uh vis-a-vis um different nutrient levels and i'm speaking about for example um Bionutrient nutrient meter that the the bio nutrient dot um, .org um, group is working on you might be interested in talking with Dan Kittridge about that um it's not going to be quite ready for a year or two but um basically um most chefs i mean we just we just um understand quality through taste you know we um but you know a lot of the general population doesn't necessarily have they're um, they're a little bit dist- you know detached from that sense in a way. Um, I think it can be reawakened easily enough, but um, um, yeah, I'm I'm very interested to see how um, things like bricks and any bio nutrient um, readings, for example, with uh, small spectrographs, can influence farmers to help them get a leg up over you know large suppliers. Um, from across the country i know that's kind of an obscure topic but you might might be thinking about that in the future um um,
0: yeah that's interesting but i find that like every time i talk to a chef i learn something new like talking to the guy who owned the restaurant whitefish that i was working at this summer like i was like what would you tell people and the first thing he said totally shocked me he was like i would tell him to make sure they deliver it to the back door like bring it to me and he said that's where he'd seen yeah, a lot of right. small businesses fail was they couldn't keep the van running or they had trouble like being at the, you know, bringing enough product for him on time. Um, and so uh, yeah. this is and then, of course, they all kind of say, you know, quality, whether you're selling flowers or you're selling food quality, which is, it sounds like you're talking about the quality of the nutrients as well as the quality of the taste. That's cool
1: which yeah. is really the same thing. That's the, that's the key to this whole thing. Jackie, it's, that's the same thing. <laughs> and, you know, um, that's what I think we're entering into an age of, uh, really just being able to like explain that scientifically and understand that intuitively too. Um, uh, so, um, yeah, I think chefs are interested in, um, also just consistent supply is an important thing. Um, you know, um, the the newest and latest uh vegetables are a good good thing to look into the plant breeders are always are always um coming up with um new varieties um there's um dan barber's working chef dan barber's working on um, um on a new uh, company i think it's called seven row seed I'm not, you might know exactly but it's they're they're working with breeders from cornell about specifically breeding um uh for um taste and vegetables which is not done as often as you
0: might think uh it is it is seven row seed you're right with that um all right well are you ready okay. for my final question is there anything like you wanted to talk about that i didn't ask or we i didn't mention or we haven't talked about yet
1: we did. Well, we've
0: covered a lot. Um, my husband's probably yeah. like, what is she doing in there? She said she was going to keep it short. <laughs> I never do. But you have dropped so many golden seats. I know yeah. listeners are going to love this episode. And my listeners have told me repeatedly, like, they don't care if it goes two hours long. Uh, I just kind of like to keep them um, to um, 55 minutes because, one, that's what PRN likes. That's the slot that they have for us. And also... It just helps me mm. editing and get the show up. But um, when somebody's sharing so much great information, I mean, you've just told us tons today. Um, and your, and your passion is just, like, inspiring. Like, makes me, like, um, want to get out there and garden and eat that healthy food. Like, um and just and do some cooking and all those good kinds of things like now that i'm actually home this weekend because like i've been gone like i've been in my classroom till 6 30 most days like even though we can technically leave at three forty five when the students leave like just trying to organize and stuff so i haven't mm-hmm. got to spend much time in my garden this year like i thought i would and um anyway here's my final question ready and you probably know how it goes. If there's one change sure. you'd like to see to create a greener world, Nick, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or a project you'd like to see put into action? Like, What do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale?
1: Well, I'll give you a couple couple quick answers um, that'll help you quick. But um, one of them is just just... Farmers nationwide worldwide growing more cover crops. Um, I think that that information has been kind of out there in the news enough. And it also was put out in a report by um, the Northeast Organic Farming Association. They did a really nice report on that and how how critical that could be to kind of reducing um, atmospheric carbon, you know, in a big way. Um, but getting, you know, that that involves probably changing the U.S. Farm Bill, you know, that's a tall order. So another thing I would say is um, um, in addition to gardening or just growing something, you know, years ago, I heard somebody say, you know, Michael Pollan say, you know, if everybody grows a garden, that that would be um, a really big change. You know, it'd be really important. And I heard somebody in response to that years later say, that's not enough or that's that's kind of insignificant. I can't remember who said it, but it's not important. And I would add to that in the sense that um, Michael Pollan's comment that gardening and also, and if you can, um, adding some kind of community element to that um, gardening in, in in community in a way, whether it's sharing your produce with a food bank or starting a community garden or helping your friends and neighbors start a garden, um, anything like that. And I lived in a a cooperative house uh, with land and a garden for a while. but I th- I think that this community element is going to become increasingly ap- so important in the future. And as, as, uh, times get tougher, for example, <laughs> and I, I would just say, um, this gardening is a good way to kind of like, um, help, help
0: keep community together. Well, that's my husband keeps saying things are going to get tougher. Times are going to get, uh, having a garden is going to be essential. So, I, you have like dropped in a few don't, but did you have like an inspirational tipper quote to help motivate listeners to reach into the dirt and start their own garden? Like, I just feel like everything you've said today has been inspirational, but maybe you had something planned. If you don't, I can just take that question out and you can tell us how to connect with you. But if you had something, like sometimes I go to skip that question and the person's like, but I had this ready. (laughs) Mm Well... Um, one
1: one lovely quote that I love, and I think it's Neil Kinsley I, from um, The um, Agronomist, said that the, uh, the soil is the plant's stomach. So, you know, a lot of gardeners might kind of understand that already intuitively. But if you're working with somebody who is kind of new to gardening, well, that's a really good way to kind of illustrate how important the relationship is between plant and soil and microbes, you know. And also to kind of like tie it into, in a way, like the human analogy that, you know.
0: Can you just repeat? The soil is the plant's what? Stomach. stomach. I thought you said stomach. I know that sounds strange. Like, is that something I don't know? Okay. No, that's oh, right. I'm sorry.
1: Okay. The soil is the plant's stomach. Yeah, and um, basically just means that the the microbes in the soil, the plethora of microbes down there, m- mineralize and metabolize all of the plant's needs, and um, so that you know when they get the liquid carbon in exchange. Uh, from the plant.
0: Perfect. Tell listeners about your website and how to connect with you. It's thrivechefworks.com. Yes. Do you yep. want to spell thrive it? thrivechefworks.com
1: is people? my website. Just in case. Sure. It's a uh, one word th- is a uh, thrive T H R I V E, chef C H uh, E F, works W O R K S. That's dot com. So that's thrivechefworks. One word dot com and um it can be reached through that uh, email for example
0: what about like are you on the social um, media sites like instagram or anywhere
1: facebook Uh, i am on facebook Um, me
0: too awesome nick thank you so so much for sharing with us today and like letting me cancel that day that we ended up having school and just like since i went back and and being here and sending me such great emails and all sorts of information and just changing our world one garden at a time and one meal at a time and uh just have a great day
1: thank you very much you too